A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, and welcome to a special episode of Radio Motherboard, which I say every week. This is Jason Kevlar, the editor-in-chief of Motherboard. And this week, we've got a live episode from the Kickstarter offices in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, right next to my house. This week, we're talking to Brian Merchant, who is a former Motherboard senior editor and the author of The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone. Brian has spent the last year looking into the iPhone, exploring its cultural relevance, traipsing all around the world, tracking down the inventors of the iPhone and the technologies within it. So he went to CERN to talk about the touchscreen technology. He talked to the inventor of the lithium-ion battery. Brian and I went to mines in Chile and Bolivia, and he went to the Foxhound factory in China, and obviously Cupertino. We're also doing this as part of Motherboard's What is the iPhone Week? So I am bringing on Luis Matsakis, who is our assistant editor, and Nicholas DeLeon, who's an editor at Motherboard, to talk about their stories in which we explore how the iPhone has impacted our culture. This is a very fun episode, and let's get into it. I want to start this off by pointing out that this is my dear friend Brian Merchant. He's wearing a very nice shirt, and on his author photo, he's wearing the same shirt. <laughs> I just didn't want there to be any confusion. Yeah. It's this guy. <laughs> I'm Jason Kebler. I'm the new editor-in-chief of Motherboard. Thank you all Woo! for coming Let's... here. Well deserved. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. This is our second live podcast. Such high demand. I wanted to talk to Brian about the creation of the one device, the secret history of the iPhone, which is your magnum opus, I believe. To date. Yeah. To date the highlight of your life. Brian didn't write about the iPhone at all at Vice, very little. And then he went off and wrote probably the best piece of Apple reporting I've ever seen. I've read this many times throughout the course of its creation. Um, you know, against and, you know, against your will sometimes. But yeah, I do appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, Jason, so uh, what also should be noted is that Jason is a recurring character in this book. He uh, shows up perhaps when you least expect him to. When we're about to like go into a tin mine, for example, or uh, I think uh, in Chile also. Yeah, so I screenshotted like the four pages that I'm on, and it's all very bad things happening to us. So uh, I went to Chile and Bolivia with Brian to report out part of the book. Do you want to tell them what the book is about first? Maybe? Okay, yeah, we've gotten ahead of ourselves a little yeah. bit. So the idea is to sort of take a wide lens approach to looking at the iPhone, given that it just does have so much weight and cultural gravity in our lives now, and just kind of to tear it apart piece by piece and sort of tell the stories of its components, of its material origins, of the labor that makes it possible, sort of in tandem with the story of how it was actually invented within Apple. Because as you might know, if you follow any of Jason's reporting or motherboard stuff, we, know, we all know that Apple goes to great lengths to seal this thing up, literally and figuratively, to make it really difficult to get inside. You need a custom screwdriver to repair the thing. And most of us stop kind of thinking about it. It's just becoming more and more like magic. So I, I, I thought it'd be worthy just to kind of dive in and just you know, really start at the beginning of where the device comes from and, and, and try to try to tell that story. Yeah, so Motherboard is a website that very rarely writes about gadgets, I think. But so it might be weird that we're having like a whole event about 
a gadget. Yeah. But I think that the way you approached it, which is how I'd expect from you, is these are the people who made the iPhone. These are the lives affected by it. So we talked to miners, or he talked to miners. I talked to some miners, too. Talked to factory workers, talked to the people who invented the lithium-ion battery and the touchscreen and stuff like that. So yeah. you went all over the world tracing down the cultural roots of this thing and the technological underpinnings of the stuff inside of it. Where did you go? If the idea was to sort of start at the basest element and then follow its sort of construction and ultimate completion into a device, I made an effort to try to make a stop that would exemplify each of those items along the way. So the trip that Jason came with me on and was a translator and and fixer and uh, all of our stuff getting stolen -er in Chile, Uh, we... we, uh, we went to the, you know, we went to the mines to, uh, in Bolivia to, to see where the tin comes from, which we, Apple publishes its supplier list. So we know, for instance, that it gets some of its tin from this mine. So we told that piece of the story. And then I went to China, to Shanghai and Shenzhen to meet factory workers, to meet the people who spend 12 hours a day on their feet assembling these things in places that are publicized from time to time due to their, um, you know, poor working conditions. And then I moved on. I tried to look at places that had contributed to the technological evolution of some of the core technologies like multi-touch. I went to CERN, where one of the first multi-touch panels was invented, but kind of vanished into the history of technology because CERN doesn't patent its stuff. And according at least to its inventor, who believes that the same technology, uh, the fingerprints of it anyways, are in the iPhone, he believes he's just been kind of written out of history. So... I got his take, and then, you know, slowly you put all these pieces together, and then you go to Cupertino to try to meet as many of the iPhone inventors, people who were there at Apple, who sort of worked behind the scenes for a long time to get a lot of these ideas on the table that would coalesce into the iPhone. Right, so this came out 10 years ago, or it was announced 10 years ago this week, and Steve Jobs stood on stage and said, you know, this is the one device, here is my gift to you, humanity. (laughs) Um, (laughs) <laughs> and it, we always think of like Steve Jobs as the inventor of the iPhone. And I feel like a big running thread through the book is that Steve Jobs did not invent the iPhone. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, rarely headline news that somebody did not invent something. But in this case, I think it's really worth peeling apart that particular mythology because it factors so heavily into how Silicon Valley, especially, which is believed to be this engine of innovation, and it is, it does a lot of great stuff, but you know, we have this founder myth, this sort of the startup hero that can be really problematic and at best very one-dimensional. Uh, and especially with Apple and its recent string of successful products, that really is sort of the line. If you're not paying attention, if you just kind of absorb it through osmosis, then it's just, yeah, it's like, oh yeah, Steve Jobs, he invented all this stuff and the world's a better place now. Which is, you know, it doesn't do anyone any favors to have that sort of simplistic a view of how these things happen. Most certainly not all the people involved in those steps that we just kind of mentioned. That was important to me to kind of try to get at the nuances and sort of get at the hidden stories. Yeah, I'm not like extremely interested normally in like the Kremlinology of Apple, but you talked to like a lot of people at Apple who worked on the iPhone and I was very surprised by how aggrieved they feel. Like they're not terribly happy with the fact that no one knows who they are. Yeah. So I guess A, like how did you start finding these people and B, like what did they feel like? Step one on that process was to just look at the patents. There are some patents that you know, are generally regarded to be some of the more influential iPhone patents. Steve Jobs' name is always first on them, but you know, you move on to number two, three, four, and some of them have 29 names on them. So I just started... You know, what do you do as a tech journalist, uh, you know, working You write about what Apple tells you to write about. (laughs) Well, right. You hit LinkedIn and you start messaging people. Yeah, I just started reaching out to everybody that I could. And I think word kind of got out that there was this guy doing this history of the iPhone and some of them lightened up and some of them. And by the end, I was talking to people who were still working in Apple who were meeting me in dive bars and who are talking to me over secure communications and we're just just to get their story out there because it really is remarkable i know apple's secrecy blah 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 is kind of a cliche at this point but it is really true these guys some of them i think are like the most influential user interface and software designers of the last 20 years and literally nobody knows who they were before this you know outside headhunters in the industry and that kind of thing did a lot of them look at it as like this is my chance to get my name out there 
I don't think anyone was would say it so explicitly, but I, you know, you got the sense that they wanted history corrected a little bit. I mean, Apple was so secretive at the time that even while they were working on this project, just internally, there are no internal photos of the process or of them just in the room hanging out. It was never like, hey, these are my colleagues, like, barbecue. It was never like that. <laughs> it was all just, it was work, 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 go home for 20 minutes, went back to work, 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 work. Um, I had these crazy stories of people telling me that this guy, Richard Williamson, who was one of the creators of Safari and then one of the key engineers who squeezed it into the iPhone, he had his first kid during the iPhone development, went to the hospital, saw the kid, went back to work. Like, literally. It was like that sort of all-encompassing. There was a huge fight that broke out. One of the most famous sort of episodes of iPhone lore was, a, was one of the engineers was trying to go home on Saturday afternoon, but there was going to be a meeting for the team and the product manager blew up at him and said, we all have kids, but you know, we all want to go home. And, uh, and he went to leave anyways. And she slammed the door so hard that the doorknob broke and she locked herself in the office. And they had to, the executive <laughs> she had to come with an aluminum bat and bash it off. It was just like crazy tension, crazy secrecy. People had no outlets. So I think, yeah, there's like a real effort for people to want to relay the work that they did in creating this thing at this point. Ten years later, it's like, why Why can't we share this story now? You know, Why the iPhone? Like, we're doing a whole series of stories about the iPhone, and I have my reasons for thinking that it's like an important device in our culture. But yeah. you call it the one device. Steve Jobs called it the one device. Like, there's a line in your book about how clothes, glasses iPhone. Like, that's right. pretty much what people carry on them at all times. Yeah, that was a great quote from this mobile technology historian who was like, he has surveyed these patterns for hundreds of years. And it's like, he says it's vanishingly rare that humans pick a new object to carry with them at all times. And it's true. It was like clothes, which is like, that's like a paleolithic thing. And it's like glasses. And like, what else? I mean, what else do we a wallet maybe, but they're accessories and then it's our phone. So it must have some sort of import that goes above and beyond most other objects. And not only that, but it's got this impressive list of most, you know, it's the most ubiquitous, most popular model of mobile computing ever made. You know, between iPhone and the Android that emulates it, this is how humanity uses computers 90% of the time. Like, this is how we interact with computing devices. And so I think trying to understand why that is and how that came about is a really worthwhile thing. Again, it's the most profitable product ever made by some counts. It edged out Marlboro cigarettes, and that's like a product that literally addicts you and compels you to buy more. Uh, so does the phone. So does the phone, <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. Should we talk about our trip real quick? Real quick, it was a good trip, good trip. It was a great trip. You know, yeah. we had some laughs, we stumbled into a Brian had me organize a trip line. to uh, Chile and Bolivia, which I had been to before. And we were going to check out the lithium mines in Chile and the tin mines in Bolivia. Yeah, which, so lithium, of course, I, many of you I'm sure know that it's the kind of the source of the most popular kind of battery now is a lithium-ion battery, and it powers not just phones and devices, but also uh, electric car batteries. And most of it right now comes from these really kind of strange sort of methods of mining where they just kind of have these vast pools where they sort of pump the lithium, which sits in like kind of a, an underground, a shallow aquifer, and they pump it up and evaporate it, and they pump it again. So we visited these giant sort of alien plants. Where they look like a Dali painting. They like really the, do. The colors are crazy as it starts evaporating. Yeah, cool. yeah, the, it, yeah. and you go at sunset, and they kind of like reflect. The, the mountains are salmon color. It's really, it's very alien. It's the same region that is, A, the driest place on Earth apart from the poles, and... It's where NASA tests like its Mars rovers because it's so Mars-like there that it's good for that. So yeah, so we went there. That's where we started, and everything went fine. It was beautiful. Right. And then I had to start fixing things. So we went to the bus station to take a bus somewhere, and I immediately got both of our laptops stolen <laughs> and uh, Brian's phone that he had smuggled out of Shenzhen, yeah. um, which was disappointing. It was disappointing, but then it also was like, it also kind of like, 
proved kind of an interesting point about that because then all we had was our phones and like back to that point to that quote it became like a mantra you kept <laughs> saying i think what was your quote you kept saying like you're phone, like oh, passport, phone, passport check that's all we have or need <laughs> like, well that's all we had because the next morning we were going to get on another bus and brian got the rest of our stuff stolen <laughs> so between dinner it's and true. breakfast we had been robbed twice <laughs> <laughs> in like 24 hour period no it was like 10 hours okay it 10 was like hours. very quick we like lost the, we like lost half of our stuff like we jason so jason had just like his camel but we just sound like bumbling buffoons. which we weren't it was which very you, no it was so like we were walking to the bus station and jason's like camel bag broke and he's like oh shit and he like took out his laptop and put it in my backpack and like okay great and then I was like, all right, I'll go get some food, you know, watch the stuff. I'll be right back. And I came back and I was like, where's the, where's the backpack? And Jason was like, shit. <laughs> and we ran screaming into this. Somebody was like, yeah, somebody just sat down, put it on, like an old man did misdirection. Yeah, I was socially engineered. Yeah, it was socially it was engineered. Anyways, the rest of the trip was great. And we did it with our phone. Like, that's the yeah. thing. Like, I recorded all the interviews with my phone. I took all the photos with my phone. I wrote, like, parts of chapters on the phone. And it was, like, kind of just... This, like, unfortunately fortuitous way to just, like, demonstrate some of the things that were, were happening in the book anyway. Yeah, I think the other really interesting story from your travels is uh, how you snuck into Foxconn. So do you want to tell us that? Because very few reporters have ever been inside Foxconn, and you you went. Yeah, yeah. We, got again, got really lucky. I was there with a, with a, a fixer, from a journalist from Shanghai, and we'd spent all day trying to get in through, you know, above board channels, just talking to workers, and the workers, a lot of them were eager to talk, and they gave great interviews, and then they'd talk to their managers and said, hey, our manager can get you, and he still works there. And we tried a couple of, couple of those, and we tried hanging out at the entrance and just asking very nicely, and that didn't work. So by like the time like early afternoon rolled around, I had to piss. I had to go to the bathroom so bad. And we were just like, you know what? It's like worth a shot. So we walked over, we had walked around and we went to a different entrance with a much more bored looking guard. And we were just like, just let us in to use the bathroom, man. Just, we'll be right back. We'll just come right back. My fixer was just like, he has to go. Look at him. He has to go. And the guy was just had, eventually he's just like, I've had enough. And he's just like, okay, come right back. And then we just bolted, and we didn't look back, and we spent an hour and a half inside this factory that was, that is one of the most secretive factories going, most famously secretive. As soon as we got inside, I was immediately worried about, you know, what what might happen if we get caught, especially for my fixer, who's a Chinese national. But I mean, beyond that, it was just this like incredible window into this city-sized factory. At its height, there were half a million people working and living and existing in these factories. It's the size of a city. It's a city-state, basically. Yeah, I always feel weird when people say that Foxconn is a factory because it's a city. Like, it's, it's a there's city. There's a 7-Eleven outside. Yeah. There's, like, there's a plazas and squares and Inside stuff, right? the factory, in the dead middle, just like a city, it's gentrified in the middle. It gets less nice on the outside. There are, you know, and then we walked from one end to the other, and it, it took the whole hour to walk the whole thing. And it's rusty, and there's, like, chemical spills and, like, cones and just kind of a place where you clearly don't want to be on the outskirts and some of the clearly a little rougher bits of the manufacturing process there. And as you go inside, there's more technical jobs, and they have, clearly have a wide range of people doing a wide range of jobs and just sheer hordes of workers, 18 to 25, looked like to me and, and my translator, but... Yeah, it was just the sheer scale of this thing was really was really impressive. The book came out last week. How has the response been? Has Apple come after you? Anything happen of uh, note? <laughs> <laughs> what nice question. Um, yeah. Besides this podcast at Kickstarter, thank you Kickstarter for having us. By the way. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. No, I think it's been Apple has denied one thing. You know, like I don't think that the ties to child labor in Bolivia have been reported before. The fact that there's still a suicide epidemic going on at the factories in Shenzhen has not been reported before. The fact that one of its executives, at one point in time, argued for a hard keyboard had not been reported before, and that's the scandal, of course. <laughs> That this marketing executive wanted uh, BlackBerry-style keys for the iPhone. So that's what everybody kind of fixated on in this, like, original round of explosion. But that's, I mean, that's just a testament to how crazy, you know, uh, people 
feel how like how much power this thing has and how, how what a fan base it, it, it ten years later it still has. Yeah, I don't want to dwell on that, but like what happened? This like verge inspired fallout. Yeah, so I published the excerpt and it contained this part and the quote was given to me by Tony Fidel, who was one of the executives in charge of the iPod at the time. He was the executive in charge of the iPod. So he was a natural sort of successor to do some iPhone stuff. And he told me the story on the record. I had to have it recorded and it was very elaborate and it feels very true. It feels like a very reasonable thing for an executive to be arguing for a BlackBerry keyboard. But Phil Schiller, the marketing executive, came out and denied it on Twitter, which sort of set off this backlash. And then Tony Fidel, for whatever reason, you know, I could speculate why, but, you know, it's probably clear. He backtracked on his comments, maybe not remembering that I had a record of it or not. Um, but yeah. Got the tapes. Got the tapes. Got the tapes. There are tapes. All right. I'm bored. <laughs> um, I want to bring up Luis Matsakis, who is a new assistant editor for Motherboard, and Nicolas de Leon, who's an editor at Motherboard, because to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the iPhone, we are doing something called iPhone Week, very elaborate name. What is the iPhone, right? What is the iPhone, yeah. So this week, Motherboard's running 25 or so stories, depending on how many I edit today, uh, about the iPhone <laughs> and how it affects our lives. So Nicholas was actually a tech reporter when the iPhone launched. Yeah. Um, I don't even remember the iPhone coming out, so yeah, no, it, it was very it's, impressive to me. Yeah, I have the, I've had the rare privilege to have been in this business long enough to remember the iPhone launch. I remember not just the launch. I remember the pre-iPhone hype cycle. I remember seeing the renderings on, like, Mac Rumors and Apple Insider where they had, like, they would basically just take like an iPod and put like a rotary dial on it and be like, it's the iPhone, right? <laughs> so I remember all of that. And I remember I was sitting in Las Vegas when it was announced. I think it was January 6, 2007. I was covering CES, which is the big tech show, sitting in the press room and like 600 miles away, Steve Jobs is in San Francisco and he announces the iPhone. Now I'm sitting in this press room with a bunch of other like tech reporters and Steve Jobs just completely invalidated CES for the rest of the week. He's, he's 600 miles away. He announced the future. And we're over here in Las Vegas looking at, like, printers and, like, TVs and stuff. <laughs> so it was kind of it, it was kind of ridiculous. But, yeah, my memories from, from the early days. It's funny how, like, now when Apple, like, the, when Apple doesn't do anything, it's like a story. It's like, oh, why haven't they looked into AR? Like, Apple was not that, like, important back then. Like, even during the iPod, like, everyone had an iPod. It was just not that pervasive and like all consuming this apple like controlling our lives and it wasn't until several years into the iphone because the iphone was you know it wasn't the first smartphone and it took a, it took a couple generations for it to really kind of like blow up i would say with like the iphone i may be wrong here but i don't remember the first iphone being very popular it was like the no app no store that well no they the first iphone was like priced ridiculously expensive and then they cut the price like six months later right. That was a huge scandal. Uh, yeah, yeah. All, all the early adopters were like, this is outrageous. And I remember all this stuff like it was yesterday. The, the Apple blogosphere was like way smaller and like way more intimate. Now there's like, there's a million publications. But that, but back then it was like way more intimate and, and way more interesting in a way. Were, uh, were you working for TechCrunch then? Or? Yeah, yeah. I was at TechCrunch. Yeah. I was here, I was here in New York. I remember seeing all the Fifth Avenue store, the lines. I remember just like honestly like hating having to cover like a line at a store. I was like, are you kidding me? Like I went to college to talk to people standing in line <laughs> to buy a phone. Come on. Uh, but that lines aren't that bad anymore, really. <laughs> no, there are no lines. That was remember the iPhone lines. We don't have that anymore. That was like a cultural. Like I remember seeing CNN trucks and CNBC trucks and people like this was a thing. This was like the realization of like the personal computer. It's like okay, it's a computer in every desk. It's like no, now it's in your pocket, and that's a that's a big deal. It's the internet in your pocket. So it was like, yeah, it was it was it was definitely interesting in the early days, and definitely interesting to see the evolution where now it's like. Now no one even really even cares. Like the iPhone, WWDC, who cares? The iPhone event, no, it's like it just happens, and you you, you pre-order it when it when it when it goes on sale. But it's, it's part not, of our culture. Yeah, now. It's, it's, it's it's like it's important still. Like people still cover it. But it's but not it's, an yeah. event. It was it was like as as the closest thing to like I don't, I don't watch football, but like the Super Bowl is a big deal. Uh, is like, it? <laughs> <laughs> so I hear. 
Uh, but like, it was a really big deal. And it was sort of cool because like, as like a professional nerd, effectively, it was neat to see like, this smartphone, a capture, like everyone's like, you see, this stuff is cool. All you people who like hated, like, you know, weren't into computers. It's like, well, actually, no, it is cool. And, and you're all using it. And now you're all playing Angry Birds. So like, who was right? Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it was, it was way smaller and way, I would say it was different in a sense, more interesting. Uh, but to see the evolution where now it's just taken for granted. And now we're coming to the other side where like there are people who are there who I'm sure were like, seething like why aren't i giving interviews on cnbc why is it all phil schiller everywhere who cares you know it's like now there's stories out there so now it's now yeah, everything's right now i don't necessarily want to get like too into how apple talks to the media because it might be boring but louise just came from mashable and they talk to apple quite often yeah we had a lot of relationships with apple and i don't know how much of the conversations i had with them were off the record but i can tell you for a fact that they have a house in tribeca that they rent out and let reporters come to and I got there and someone on an iPad already knew who I was and I'd never met them before. And that was my first experience as like a young tech reporter being like, wow, this is kind of a cult. And like, I didn't really understand the power that they could wield. And it was interesting. And you- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Go into these meetings and you're in this beautiful house in Tribeca and they're trying to woo you. And every word that comes out of everyone's mouth is completely scripted and it's effortlessly so. And then you ask a question they weren't expecting and they don't have an answer for you. And then that person gets like pushed into like the back of the room and then someone else is talking to you suddenly (laughs) and you start to realize like what a charade it is. And it's amazing. There are a lot of reporters who were there who are, you know, diligently taking notes. And the next day, you know, I saw those stories and I, it's really amazing what an apparatus they've kind of created, which is why I think it's really important that books like Brian's exist because they are like a counter narrative to that. And I really wanted to ask you, I think I grew up a little bit later than Nicholas. And by the time I kind of got an iPhone, there started to become a conversation about what happens after you get another iPhone. And when I was young, I never really thought about the fact that I always wanted the next phone. It was such a part of my childhood that, you know, or my teenage years that it never really, I was like, I just don't want this one anymore. Like I want the newest one. And then I took a trip to West Africa last year, which I know you also went to the same region. And I'd love to hear about your experience in Nairobi and what happens after the hype cycle, like Nicholas talked about for the next phone, what happens to that phone you get rid of? Yeah, I, I went there to, for for two reasons, and one was to like look at the burgeoning sort of app scene there, and to try to follow some e-way streams, which I think is what you're asking about. And yeah, I mean these phones wind up in dumps. You know, a lot of uh, people just you know the battery dies and they're done with them, and they do just go on to the next. Maybe they spend like a few months in a drawer somewhere, and then they get dumped out. Can we do a quick show of hands? Like, how many people have an old phone in a drawer in right a now, drawer or a closet? <laughs> yeah, everyone, everyone. Wow. And I, I mean, I have one too, and I write about how bad this is all the time. Yeah. I have just one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But these phones, they take a lot of earth to mine and a lot of labor and. Our phones and our computers are still good for a long time after we get rid of them, even if they're broken, even if they're in like a million pieces. For for this week, I talked to a bunch of iPhone repair people about the most fucked up phone that they'd seen. One fell 400 feet off of a wind turbine and cracked into like a thousand pieces. Another guy shot his with a gun. For some reason. Yeah, because apparently someone at the Apple store told him the screen is practically bulletproof. And so he shot it with a gun. Uh, yeah, Jason sent that photo to me like on with no context over Slack. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and these phones got fixed and they're still working today, presumably. Right. Two people told me that teens broke their phone by strapping their iPhone to a ceiling fan because they were playing Pokemon Go. So they wanted to get their steps up. Oh, my God. Yeah, so people do really dumb stuff with their phones. 
And you can fix these things and you can resell them, and that's the best thing that you can do with the phone. Yeah. Because they have life for, for quite and some And they're time. still pretty valuable. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. these retain their value for a long time. I know a guy who yeah. still sells, like, the old MacBooks from, like, 2009. Yeah. That's all he does. He, like, gets yeah. them from electronics recyclers and sells them. Yeah. And he makes thousands of dollars. And the, it's given rise to, like, sort of this host of, like, really super skilled repairmen. When I was there, and sort of these, these, dump in Kenya, like on the side, they would fish the phones out. They'd end up in the, you know, these fairly sophisticated waste streams that kind of end up in a, in a few hot spots around the world. But then they can take something with a mangled screen, grab a new one, and the, watching these guys work, they're pros. Yeah, you know? I know a guy who used to repair phones on the subway. Yeah. Like on the L. Yeah. Of course it was the L. Yeah, it was the L. <laughs> one of the guys in Shenzhen, I, found, I, I visit this black market in Shenzhen, it's, it's gone. It was insane. It was like four stories high, filled with nothing but iPhone parts, component bits. And I showed you some of the photos of this, and it's really wild. It's just like an entire stall filled with just the little... Apple logo that gets fastened on the back of the phone. So you go there and you get that. You go like an entire stall filled just with just the casing. So does someone go that. and like, they're like, okay, today I'm going to build my phone. That's what I did. I asked this guy, <laughs> I was like, how much would it cost for you to start from scratch and just build me a phone? And he said like 50 bucks, the equivalent of 50 bucks. And I watched him go from stall to stall. We cheated a little bit because he grabbed a motherboard that had a bunch of the components, but Camera here, you know, the lithium-ion battery here, the, you know, some of the digitizers were bust, so he got some new ones from a little stall that sold those. And this is just an entire hub, like the size of a small indoor mall in China. And all of those pieces had been extracted, moved around, refined, cleaned up, and I was there with a sort of a, a waste expert, and he was like, you know, there's a good chance if you buy your phone on eBay, even if it says it's coming from Texas, there's a good chance it's coming from right yeah. here. And why not? I mean, if it's why not? Works, it's fine. Right. I love that. It's like the question is, like, what makes a phone a phone? If you buy it in the Apple store, is it an iPhone? Or these exact sort of functioning parts that work exactly the same, run the same software? Although I also saw an iPhone that ran Android software, too, which is kind of trippy. I have not seen that before. <laughs> Louise, I want to talk to you real quick about the story you've been reporting, because I think it's important you're talking about the people who prove apps for the App Store, which if we agree that the iPhone is such an important piece of technology, the fact that Apple decides what can and cannot be on there is quite concerning. So like in the past... Apple has not allowed an app that tracks drone stri- U.S. drone strikes in the Middle East to be on the App Store. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we reported a story saying that Pepe is banned from the App Store, the, the frog. The mean frog. <laughs> mean frog. No mean familiar. frogs on the App Store. So I guess, like, what have you learned and uh, why is this important? So I think that, yeah, I was going to say we've had a long conversation tonight about the hardware, and I think it's also important to talk about the software. And as Brian wrote in his book, Steve Jobs was originally against the idea of building an app store. He was like, this is Apple's thing. We don't want there to be third-party developers. It's going to cause it to crash. Like, I don't want that. And then about half a year after the iPhone first came out, they finally launched the app store, which is today almost a $30 billion business. You know, we've seen a crazy amount of developers become rich off of what is now known as the app economy. And uh, yeah, so I heard... Pepe and the Drone Strike app, those were kind of the examples I was really familiar with. But in my reporting, I've discovered that Apple basically has one of the longest track records of censorship of any tech company. The amount of censorship that they've done in the App Store is like absurd. And I think the most interesting examples are the contradictions, right? Like for a while, they were banning bikini apps. Like if you wanted to, you know, get a wallpaper with like women wearing bikinis, that was not allowed. But then several months later, they not only allowed, but featured the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition app. It was a special app for the swimsuit edition because there was a business relationship there. And I think the most interesting examples are where Apple makes economic decisions to favor their own business. And you realize, like, no, this isn't just, like, this nice app store they've made for you to put stuff on your iPhone. They're making these strategic decisions that are completely shielded from developers who have, in some cases, spent their entire lives making these apps that are then not allowed to Apple's 700 million iPhone users. Well, it's really interesting. There's like this famous anecdote in uh, New York Times profile of Travis Kalanick by friend of motherboard Mike Isaac. Um, (laughs) And Tim Cook like called Travis Kalanick into his office, the CEO of Uber. And Uber was doing some shady stuff, if you could imagine. (laughs) And yeah. And Tim Cook was basically like, look, if you don't cut this out, we're taking Uber out of the app store. And, like, can you imagine if Apple deleted Uber, like, (laughs) across every iPhone? Like, people talk about what it would take to kill Uber. Like, that would kill Uber instantly. Yeah. 
Yeah, that sounds like such a great story. The other thing that I think is interesting to add to that is one of those famous, you know, once in a while, Steve Jobs would just like respond to uh, yes, people email. who emailed. Yeah. yeah, there's that email where, <laughs> I, was it a Gizmodo writer who, who had emailed him about, kind of complaining about... Where's uh, the porn? Where yeah, he didn't let porn on it. Yeah. <laughs> and they had this, and it was pretty revealing because he's like, there's just no porn on my machines, basically. Like, he was no like, if you porn. want porn, get, get an Android. Yeah. That's literally what he said. So, and I, that is just reflective of a lot of things with the iPhone, is it just, it's playing by Steve Jobs or now like the echo of Steve Jobs sort of moral compass, whatever, you know, that was in this case, no porn. So there's just no porn on the iPhone. Yeah. I think that's like a good place to start taking uh, audience questions. If you've got, if you've got you want to talk about porn, and yeah, yeah, I mean, you can get porn on the iPhone if you really try. I, I think I wouldn't yeah. know, but yeah. open that browser <laughs> theoretically yeah, in theory, right? Yeah. Hey, I just wanted to ask a little bit about. I think one of the the topics that came up earlier was really interesting. Was the story of, and maybe I'm using the term incorrectly, but kind of a, a potential catharsis that could happen when. Some of the individuals you spoke with who really sounds like spent an incredible amount of their lives working on this in, in secret and without sort of documentation. I'm kind of curious if you've heard any feedback yet, and maybe it's a little too early, or you think you might hear feedback from them about what their experience is like having now had that story documented and getting publicized and whether there's a, you know, whether there's something that happens to them where they're, they're sensing their story being told and whether that's, you know, providing something to them in some way. I did hear through the grapevine, literally, that one of the people whose story I tell in the book, who I feature in the book, who does still work at Apple, I heard through the grapevine that after the the excerpt was published, he got a standing ovation when he came in because nobody knew that he was involved in this. No, Even in Apple, nobody knows who the people are who worked on the iPhone. That's how secret it was and remains to be. I mean, Apple has always touted itself as this company that always looks forward, but it's so true in some senses that, you know, people are sitting right next to people that have this immense well of experience that they have no idea about. I'm curious, uh, can you just explain, like, what some of the security measures they took to make sure that the people who were working on the iPhone didn't, like, leak anything or... Yeah, so there are two parts. If you were working on iPhone software... That was like the most, that was like the Manhattan Project basically at Apple. It was, you would be invited to work on, you know, either Scott Forstall or one of his deputies would come into your office and basically say, we have this great project. I can't tell you what it is. I can't tell you anything about it. Do you want to come work on it? You will give up your weekends, your holidays, your lives. You have to tell me now. And a lot of people did. And they had to sign NDAs. Sometimes they had to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, before they signed the next NDA, saying that I won't talk about, you know, what's on this NDA should I not <laughs> decide to sign it because it's so intense. And then after you've signed your NDAs and you've sort of agreed to sacrifice your social life, then you can go to this building that was in a sort of a sealed off wing at Apple's campus, the Infinite Loop 2, which was, it was an area right above the industrial design studio. And they had badge readers. It was sealed off. Nothing really got in. Very little got out. It was a sealed off, very smelly place, because these people lived in there, basically, around the clock. What was the most surprising thing that you learned about the iPhone or how it was made? The the fun thing about reporting this book was that every chapter, it was like, whoa, yeah. It was like really legitimately satisfying to like learn all this new stuff. So picking just one is hard. I think like for me, like the most surprising thing was to learn about the legacy of multi-touch because multi-touch is something that Steve Jobs literally like threw up on the screen and it said like, we, Apple invented multi-touch and boy, we patented it. And like literally nothing about that statement is true. So, like, learning the whole legacy of how multi-touch began in the 80s and then how one person who had come to work at Apple, Wayne Westerman, sort of invented the technology that we see in the iPhone now in its most basic form because he had hand injuries and he couldn't finish his dissertation because it hurt too much. So he invented this technology called Fingerworks. He started a company called Fingerworks that would allow him to swipe. And I I love that story as kind of like a hidden history of what ended up getting baked into this thing that's so ubiquitous now. I am wondering... What what is the future for the iPhone now that like you know so much about where it came from and how it was made and how it has become this like dominant cultural force? Yeah. Do you think that this device, this one device, will be the one device in five years, ten years? Like, 
Where does the iPhone go from here, I guess is my question. Yeah. And I kind of have a boring answer to that question because I think that's exactly right. I think for a lot of reasons, the iPhone will probably look a lot like it does today in 10 years or you know, whatever is the dominant sort of smartphone is. And there's a couple reasons that I cite when I think about that. And that's because 10 years ago, the iPhone launched in a form that where many of the sort of most basic fundaments are basically what they are today, right? It's a touch screen. The same kind of UI ingredients are the dominant part of the user interface. It's still app-based. I, I think like the things that have changed are like little flourishes, like force touch. And we hear about, you know, Siri got at it and now we're hearing about augmented reality and things like this. But they're really like iterations kind of taking place on the side of the sandbox, like the core powerhouse of the phone. You know, yeah, it's gotten faster, bigger screen, whatever, but the core elements haven't really budged all that much. And I think that speculating is always like kind of a fool's errand, but you know, I could see it becoming kind of like this core central part of our lives, like, like the car did. You don't, the sedan isn't that much different than it was 50 years ago on like sort of a philosophical level. We're probably going to have an iPhone that looks a lot like the iPhone in 10 it's, years. It's interesting because Apple has done so much to lock you into continuing to buy the iPhone. Like right. I think maybe part of Katie's question was, like, is there a competitor that could take over? And, like, what comes after the iPhone? Yeah. But in terms of, like, competitors, obviously Android is bigger than iPhone is right yeah. now. And it has been for quite some time. But Apple has done a lot with iCloud and with iMessage, especially, to lock people into it. It's just, like, right. once you're sort of indoctrinated to leave, there's, like, a high barrier to leaving, right. I feel. Yeah, there's different ways, you know, like, is it, like, the device, the smartphone that's kind of modeled after the iPhone mold, which, you know, the Android is more or less inspired by that sort of mold, um, and will that change and be taken over? I don't know. Another thing to think about is the fact that Apple has so many resources, it's so valuable, it makes so much money off of every iPhone. Like, the Android is more has more units sold, and it runs on more phones, but they don't make nearly as much money off of their phones as the iPhone does. So Apple has this huge imperative to sort of perpetuate this. It almost has a, a reason not to innovate in that classic sense. The Foxconn anecdote, you said you, tra- you ran around there for an hour and a half. What happened at the end of that? Did you get kicked out forcibly? And what happened to your colleague who accompanied you? We decided to stop pressing our luck and just leave. It kind of yeah, it, you know, it, you, it's hard to, to go unnoticed in certain areas there. So we, I think we just decided that we'd kind of canvassed from one side of the other. We'd seen the factory blocks. We'd tried to get into a few of them. We'd, we'd spoken to a few folks and we'd, we'd seen the dorms and I, we just kind of both figured that it was time to go. So we did just kind of like, as casually as we could, joined like the stream of it was evening then and of, of workers who were exiting to go get a bite or something just kind of shuffled out with the masses. And she's fine. Like she's nothing. She never got ID'd or, you know, we're, we're still in touch. And I had her read, read the chapter to verify details and quotes and stuff. And she is doing fine. Hi. Yes. Thank you. It's Evan Rogers, social media manager for competing technology website and gadget.com. Wow. Uh, I did have friend of motherboard. (laughs) Former motherboard employee. Yeah. I did have one question, which was, which was just that, was there anything that you saw on your travels that would make you think that in the future we could have these devices without slavery or without, you know, human rights violations or, rare uh, damage to the environment was there anything that you saw that would kind of give you that impression absolutely i mean the thing is is that it really wouldn't take that much it would take a handful of different forces one it would take apple deciding to actively do more that it was willing to cut down on its profit margins a little bit to do more thorough and more aggressive supply chain audits um it does some good things uh, and probably does more than a lot of companies, but it could do more. It, had, it It's so valuable. It has such a, has this, you know, this massive pool of hundreds of billions of dollars of cash sitting in a bank in Ireland. It can take things a little bit further. And, you know, we can demand more th- from them too. We can, we can 
vote more. The culture could shift just a little bit. So right now we're on this hyper upgradability cycle where everybody wants a new phone every year and Apple has been instrumental in promoting that mentality. So if all this work that Jason does on repairability, uh, the, the, me- the message underlying all that is that we could have a gadget and fix it and upgrade it. And that's why a lot of people were you know, excited, even though it ultimately got mocked about like Google's modular phone, like something that you can upgrade. There is a path there. It's just there are economic and cultural forces that just have to be confronted in order to get there. Um, so I wanted to ask about uh, jailbreaking and and sort of the unlocking community, which is which emerged as, as a you know way secondary app economy, um, and in as as far as I understand, really prompted Apple to create an official app store in the first place. Um, and I guess I wanted to know if you I don't know if you go into this in the book. Sorry, I haven't read it yet. Um, uh, but whether sort of what the sense is from the rank and file inside Apple, whether they view these people as just super fans that are pushing the the product forward, or whether the engineers feel the same way as as you kind of feel like Apple corporate does about like this is something that must be squashed. Lorenzo, Lor- give the give the mic to did, Lorenzo. Wait, but did Lorenzo <laughs> plant this question? Yeah, <laughs> Lorenzo, come up here. <laughs> So yeah, we yeah. have a, we have actually a story. There's no seat here. Yeah, this is Lorenzo Franceschi Bicari. He's our the best security reporter on earth, save for maybe Joseph Cox. That's fake news. Another uh, reporter from Motherboard. It's and true. He and Brian just worked on a gigantic feature about the history of jailbreaking and and what's going on. It will run, I think, two days from now. Maybe. <laughs> uh, depends on Jason at this point. It's in my hands. Um, so to answer your question, I think it was a little bit of both. So parts of Apple, especially at the higher level, they didn't like the jailbreakers. And they didn't like the fact that they basically hacked the phone and exposed that it wasn't as secure as Steve Jobs and people like him like to say. But other parts were sort of admired, uh, that group. And um, they hung out with them unofficially. And as you said, like they did take a lot of the, the stuff and the innovations that the jailbreakers pushed and incorporated them into the iPhone. So, for example, Brian has it in the book. Um, he does talk about the fact that the App Store was basically like invented by the jailbreakers. And then Apple was like, oh, this is a good idea. Maybe we should do it. So, yeah, that, that was... it's. It's a little bit of both. It's like, um, you know, they didn't like the fact that they were, you know, going against the ivory tower, but they also like, they liked what they were doing. So they, they incorporated it. Yeah. Also, it's funny to note. Yeah. I, I actually just spoke with Jay Freeman, who was, uh, one of the key guys in building Cydia, which was the sort of the alternate app store formulation and he was you know they all all these jailbreaker guys would go to WWDC they'd go to the developer conferences where apple would ha- would, would would put on um their their events for their legit developers so they knew the community really well and especially in the rank and file there was some interfacing and they knew each other a little bit um but the other interesting thing to note is that it didn't stop when they just built the app store so, you know, it would go on for years that Apple would take features that would show up in Cydia and show up on jailbroken phones and go, oh, like the notification system, that that's a cool idea. Like, let's do that. So a lot of them you were have direct sort of lineage from things people did with jailbreaking uh, that that were then ported over. Um, it's it's a really I, I love that chapter because it's a great example of people. Like, I equate it in the book almost to, like, a public kind of protest. All of the different sort of groundswell against not having an open app store. So you had, like, developers just wanting it. You had, like, people breaking into the phone, kind of doing more subversive tactics to show, like, to demonstrate what could be done with this power. And they were making mostly benign apps and having fun with it. And people were like, that's really cool. Uh, so, yeah, it really did kind of inspire what would be the key foundation of kind of... I would just add really quickly that that sort of spirit of jailbreaking, that kind of tied into like, which was very big in the early and mid-2000s, like the anti-DRM kind of movement where it's like, you know, I own this hardware, I should be able to do it, do with it with what I want to do with it. And so the idea that like Apple says, here's this phone, but you can't put anything on it, that like lit the fire under those same guys who were like, well, actually, we're going to break into it and put install whatever software we want on it. So that sort of like, you know, take this attitude was uh, kind of 
really pervasive in a lot of like the open source and kind of like uh, anti-DRM communities back then. Yeah, it's very interesting that uh, the story that Lorenzo and Brian are working on is kind of like why don't people jailbreak their iPhones anymore? And one of the big reasons is because Apple just took all of their ideas and put it into the iPhone, so there's no reason to do it anymore. There there's still are some people who do it, but um, it is kind of a shame that now the walled garden is sort of like firmly in place. Um, but now you have a lot of people jailbreaking other devices, like you have a lot of farmers jailbreaking their tractors and stuff like that <laughs> to, to repair them. So there are always wars to be fought, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, also, just to follow up, uh, a lot of the people that were early jailbreakers ended up working for Apple. And not a lot, but like a, a, quite a few. Some of them, yeah. Like um, Nicolas Allegra was from New York, better known as Comics. He worked for Apple for like six months. Uh, Jonathan Zizyarski, who was like an early jailbreaker, is working at Apple right now. So it was, this tells you again, like, you know, what Apple did was just take, take them, like take them and their ideas and incorporate them. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you so much, Kickstarter, for having us. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Jason Kebler. I was with Brian Merchant, the author of The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone. It's available on Amazon and at your local bookstore. It's really good. I've read it multiple times. Brian is also our Terraform editor, which is our science fiction section. Thank you so much to Kickstarter and to Luis Matsakis and Nicholas De Leon, who are editors here at Motherboard and helped with our iPhone week, which is available at motherboard.vice.com. Anything tagged with the tag, what is the iPhone, is part of that week. Our editor is Tim Barnes. Thank you, Tim. And we'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.